Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Russia's bombardment of Ukraine shows no sign of easing, and yet President Zelensky says ceasefire talks are moving in a realistic direction. Boris Johnson jets to the Gulf in a bid to ease the UK's energy crisis and will take stock of the crisis which is gripping the world's attention. Just a few weeks ago, headlines were being made by cake-led ambushes, wine-packed roll-along suitcases, how to fix a dysfunctional number 10. We've now got reports of how to cut down the Prime Minister's team enormously and create a more streamlined Downing Street operation. So is it going to work? We'll take a look at that. And we'll then switch to the story which used to dominate the headlines, but which is very much continuing to shape how this country works, and that's Brexit. A new report of ours dives into the government's plans to reform agricultural support now that the UK has left the EU. Much has been promised to farmers, environmentalists, consumers, pretty much everyone. Can the government keep them all happy? We're going to talk to the author. So to talk about all that today, we've got two IFG podcast veterans, Senior Fellow Kath Haddon and Programme Director Alex Thomas. Hi, both of you. Hi, Bronwyn. Good to be here. Hello, Bronwyn. Good. Alex, thanks for coming on with covid um, I'm concerned about, concerned about your voice and about you, but thank yeah, you. Try not to flutter too much. Yeah. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by someone who needs no introduction, and that's the political commentator, Adam Bolton. Hi, Adam. Hello. Great to have you with us. A real pleasure. Thank you for asking. Well, as I said, let's start with events in Ukraine. Adam, you were at Sky News for a long time, spanning many political crises and military conflicts as well. What's your take on where we are now? You wrote for Reaction, the news and comment outlet, that Russia's eventual withdrawal from Ukraine is still possible. Do you really think so? Yes, I do. Uh, It's interesting that we have these uh, peace talks going on, that we have uh, uh, Zelensky clearly sending out some signals on his side as to what uh, uh, could be given up, uh, particularly an application to join NATO, and that on the Russian side, their terms appear to be shifting. Of course, we've had the uh, French, who've been uh, very closely involved, saying they don't think the Russians are negotiating in sincerity. But the fact that we're now into the uh, nearly the fourth week of this conflict and that Russia has not taken the targets it wants, I think, means that there is still uh, some uh, bargaining power. And of course, in, in media terms, perhaps the most dramatic event, other than the horrors uh, of the bombings this week, has been that protest on Channel One Russian TV, which I think certainly shows that even in the heart uh, of the uh, the Russian nomenclature, I nearly said Soviet there, there clearly is a great deal of discontent about what what's going on. So I think it, it remains possible, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, that after the dreadful devastation that has been wreaked, there will have to be a, a Russian withdrawal from uh, Ukraine. I think one of the interesting questions is where that leaves Crimea and particularly uh, the eastern uh, Ukraine, which have been, have been claimed. All these kind of things that might be in some kind of bargain. And you talked about bargaining power there, though I winced when you used the phrase peace talks, because that, so it feels a bit premature, possibly, particularly if the Russians aren't in good faith. Do you think there is really room for a bargain? We've had so many weeks of people talking about the awful choice that President Zelensky was going to be faced with, of whether to give up, make lots and lots of concessions to Russia because of the threat of annihilation of his people. Do you think he's won himself some real bargaining power? Yes, I do. And I think there is an interesting difference. Uh, If you like, uh, I've noticed that People who uh, remember the Cold War 
uh, quite often, and Henry Kissinger would be one example, are quite often to incline to say, well, you know, we could always go back to where we were before, where we accept uh, Russians' uh, zone of influence, and basically uh, that Ukraine, or at least a free Ukraine, would be the price of that. My feeling is, is that we are in a very different phase of history, partly because uh, Russia is aggressive in a way that uh, it, outside its own territory, if you like, in a way that it, it, it wasn't for much of the Cold War. But also, I think the the phenomenon of the close reporting, the phenomenon of uh, Zelensky means that there is a much greater public and international support uh, for Ukraine uh, and, and an unwillingness, I think, certainly amongst rising generations to effectively sell it out in pursuit of an end of hostilities. Mm. We saw an intervention from Tony Blair this week, and he was uh, not an architect of the end of the Cold War, but a beneficiary certainly of it. He put a timescale of just two weeks on all sides to broker peace or else there would be escalation. Do you think he's right? I would be very hesitant. Uh, I'm, I'm not a military expert, and I would be very hesitant of putting putting times on it. I suppose what uh, Tony Blair was suggesting was that if the Russians can't uh, end being bogged down and can't make progress, then they will use uh, heavier weapons uh, in pursuit of their ends. Uh, I, that clearly remains a possibility, but also one has to work, bear in mind that uh, the more weapons and the more destruction uh, that uh, Russia carries out in Ukraine, the more it undermines its uh, war aims and its post-war aims. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Kath, we've got Boris Johnson going off to Abu Dhabi to try and secure alternative energy supplies and um, alternative in the sense of different source of oil and gas. And Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, accused him of going cap in hand from dictator to dictator. You think that was fair? Yeah, I mean, Labour have come out very strongly against the moves that the government's making. I mean, the first thing is to say is, is whether or not Boris Johnson achieves any success with it, because if he doesn't so, he has already opened up these questions about the logic and the you know proprietary of, of, of going to Saudi Arabia in particular. The newspapers this morning are sort of uh, pretty critical of, of the progress yesterday and the readout from, from talks yesterday, and also pointing out that Saudi Arabia executed three people yesterday on the day of Boris Johnson's visit. So it kind of goes to this wider issue that uh, we're facing now in looking back over the UK's Russia policy of what is the balance between when you've got strong nations that you want to develop a new relationship with, but they have, you know, intrinsic um, aspects to their governments, their cult, you know, to, to whatever, whatever they're doing, that you have a problem with on uh, human rights grounds or liberal democracy or whatever. And and what is the balance between rail politic and standing up for for rights around the world? So. It is a really tricky one for the government. I think at the moment, the balance in terms of the reaction from the newspapers uh, is not the right one. We don't know, obviously, how much that affects the wider public and their view of, of the government. But they've certainly tried to change their tune in terms of relationships with uh, Russian donors and so forth, mm. which has been mm. a, an awkward position for, for conservatives. But Johnson has clearly made a strategic decision that that was the place in the world to to go looking for oil. So we'll have to see how it plays out today. So you can be tough on one dictator at a time, but but but, but not two. It sounds like Adam. Actually, I just wanted to come back to you on that because we had obviously yesterday a rare bit of good news of the release of uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe from Iran. 
settlement apparently of an old British debt. But do you think Iran is playing a complicated game of influence here, trying to you know, get license for its own indeed cyber attacks on Israel we've heard about about, about recently, just get, get Western powers off its back? Well, after six years of uh, Nazneen uh, Zaghari Ratcliffe being held hostage, it's difficult not to see this development uh, at uh, a time of uh, high international tension as, as, as being in some way related to uh, the great power manoeuvres. And uh, quite often, uh, Iran and Russia have been seen as uh, partners, if you like. And I, I, I would read into this that perhaps the Iranians don't want to be seen that way at this particular moment, possibly because they don't think that things uh, are going all uh, Russia's way. That said, uh, I think, you know, what we've just been hearing about Boris Johnson going to the Gulf and British foreign policy at the moment is all over the place. Um, you know, we're seeking advantages where we can. There's this great hole in British foreign policy that as a result of Brexit, we're not really uh, identifying as part of a common European effort and uh, trying to do things uh, independently and on our own and seek for other partners around the world. And, and I think the net effect of that is, frankly, that uh, the UK is a diminished uh, player in the international politics of the moment. I mean, it's striking listening to the uh, Americans talking about the situation. The UK is barely mentioned by any of the, any of their experts, which, of course, would be very different if we look back uh, at the international crises we've seen over the previous uh, 30 or 40 years. It's a really good point. And I must say, personally, I really agree with you about Iran's calculations in this, um, perhaps just trying to distance itself from Russia right at this moment. It seems impossible that there wasn't some kind of linkage in the Iranian calculation. But Alex, take us um, back home, if you, if you will. You used to work at the heart of British government. One of the big questions this week has been the response to the Ukraine, um, the, the refugee crisis, and whether or not the government has judged public mood right whether it's got a grip on what it wants to do what do you make of it yeah and it's it's i mean it's striking just if you if you think about those inside government have had to deal with a succession of crisis after crisis after crisis over the last year and uh, two years and, and and more so whether that makes it easier or harder to uh, to, to respond uh, nimbly when things like this uh, hit you know i'm not sure but definitely and it has been a moment of crisis. There's been a lot of criticism uh, of the Home Office in particular for a slow response to the uh, refugee crisis and the, and the immigration consequences of that. Our colleague, uh, Jill Rutter, who we will hear from later uh, on Brexit and agriculture, um, wrote a comment piece uh, on that. And Jill points out that the Home Office is not sort of temperamentally or uh, constitutionally well suited to respond to a moving high octane crisis like this. The the Home Office prioritises control over the immigration system, partly as a legacy of 10 years and longer of not being able to exercise good, tight control over that. I think more more generally, there's a question about in, in the domestic departments, the extent to which they recognise this is a moment of crisis. We saw Michael Gove, uh, the Secretary of State for Leveling Up, uh, make the main announcement about the refugee uh, settlement uh, programme in the House of Commons this week. It was uh, notable that um, uh, if, if there's a crisis, send for send for Gove. So that was, uh, was politically uh, interesting. Deluxe, the, the levelling up department, does have a role in resettling these refugees. But Gove's role in this, as opposed to Priti Patel's as Home Secretary, is is, is interesting. So it, it hasn't been the government's uh, finest hour 
domestically, I think, although it does, it seems like they're, t- they're taking a grip. There are some real risks in this process, though. I mean, people have talked about the safeguarding aspect of welcoming uh, immigrants into people's homes sort of in both in both directions. So there are a lot of things that could go wrong. This is still quite high risk for, for the government. And in that sense, their caution may look justified by saying, look, first, we really do want to have some kind of check on who comes into the country. And secondly, uh, if we're putting people um, into people's homes. As you said, we want some kind of safeguarding. So it may look what looks like ungenerous caution at this point, I guess, may look justified. Uh, D luck. I hadn't heard the department call that before. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm going there. It sounds rather ugly. Right. Yeah, right. It has not been a good week for Pretty Patel. Just one other thing, which you will have a, a look at at least in your time in government this question of, of Britain taking Russian money, if not. You know, becoming London grad, the the willingness to take money uh, because it counted as investment. Uh, never mind who it came from. What do you make of that? And and has there been a real culture of that? Is it now changing? Yeah, interesting. I think it's you know it's definitely changing, and uh, the the world is changing before our eyes, and this is part of it. Um, there was an interesting uh, article from Danny Finkelstein of the Times, and he, and he was pointing out that it's not in and of itself a bad thing for uh, the UK to want to welcome uh, Russian investment, to, to welcome Russia as part of a global finance and other community. That was not a kind of ignoble aim. There is a question over just how far uh, the uh, financial and uh, ethical standards in the City of London in particular were uh, applied, whether there was a sort of over-eager dash for money-making. Um, but I think in, in principle, a, a global op- open trading economy is is a good thing. One of the points of reassurance, though, I suppose, and there's been a lot of commentary about you know, Boris Johnson and uh, Evgeny Lebedev, the owner of the Evening Standard, giving being given a peerage, possibly against the advice of the security services. Uh, plenty of stuff to look into that. I would be very surprised if any of that has seriously affected the security or other decision making around this particular crisis. I think it might you know, influence influence things in all sorts of ways, but I would be surprised if you could draw any sort of direct line between the um, the geopolitical and security decisions that we're taking and, and Russian money. Well, I, I'm, I'm just pausing on that one. Um, Adam, what do you think? You've written about how Johnson as London mayor was eager to encourage billionaires to treat the capital as their playground. What do you make about how to... He, he, any government, should strike this balance between wanting money but caring about where it comes from. Well, of course, there's this um, new book out. I can't remember quite what the title is about the world's butler, suggesting that uh, since Suez, Britain's uh, had did find a role in the world contrary to uh, Dean Acheson, which was uh, basically to uh, uh, be uh, an offshore haven for people with dodgy money and not and not ask enough questions. And I certainly think there has been an inconsistency which we've seen exposed not just with this uh, prime minister but previously between the British government supporting moves by the G7 and others against tax havens, uh, perhaps wanting to uh, move towards some kind of uh, international tax uh, control, and then revelation after revelation that uh, actually uh, we've been busy taking money and indeed uh, allowing our courts to be used to uh, protect the somewhat dubious reputation of a lot of people with money. And now the question, I think, is just how important all this money has been to keeping uh, UK PLC going. And frankly, are we in a position to say that, uh, you know, we want to return to being uh, more principled in terms of uh, the way in which we we conduct our affairs, given that our international reputation has hitherto been one for probity in the rule of law? 
but possibly a reputation that is sliding as, as a whole range mm. of MPs got up to say in the Commons. You're referring to the book called Butler to the World by Oliver Buller, and we have a special podcast with him and others on this uh, this kind of question in parallel to this one. Let's, on that, um, which we're not going to resolve right now, but remains a fascinating question, let's switch to our second question, which is the new number 10 Downing Street. If Boris Johnson's having a better time on the international stage, he has still had a rough time at home. Partygate, as everyone is calling it, is quiet at the moment, but it won't be forever. The police investigation carries on. They're going to report soon, probably. And so apparently do the government's plans to overhaul the way that Number 10 is run, which they announced in response to the very fierce criticism. Kath, can you take us into this? What is what is going on there? Behind the scenes, I mean, it was announced when, during Partygate, they... Um, that they would, uh, Sue Gray's report obviously talked about the nature of number 10 and um, some of the problems there, particularly around leadership and accountability. And so shortly thereafter, we had these changes that came through. There was some of the key figures involved with if party gates were departing, including Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, his Principal Private Secretary and various others, his uh, Director of Communications, uh, and new people were brought in. But but alongside that, you also had this announcement that there would be a new Office of the Prime Minister and a new Permanent Secretary to, to head up that office. And so what we're now starting to see, at least in reports coming out, uh, are that these changes are being implemented. And thus far, um, you know, as in the tradition of Partygate, most of that is people complaining about what's happening rather than a sort of coherent message from the government about what they're trying to do, why they're trying to do it and what this means for, for everyone working there. As an implementation of a change goes, it's it's not going very well in terms of externally. Of course, we don't know from those reports actually how well it's going to be. It's the people griping, the people that have been moved out of the building itself, away from the prime minister, or that, that cached position of how close is your seat to the prime minister. Um, so, of course, they were, so they were hearing a lot, a lot of the, the, you know, it's pitching up in the papers, the, the pain of being moved from number 10 to number 70 Whitehall, even though the two buildings are connected. Exactly. So you need a pinch of salt in the sense of those are the people who are complaining and, and they would, wouldn't they? But without this sort of coherent sense of what are you doing and why are you doing it, it's very difficult for all of us who have looked at number 10 for many, many years to make assessments about whether or not this is actually going to work. And this is a really important potential set of changes because you could be changing the very nature of the centre of our government, um, the cabinet office and the, the department that, you know, the, the number 10 itself. Let me ask a simple question. Is it all too big? We've heard from very senior civil servants who were out for a bit and they came back and said, uh, my goodness, this has all ballooned in just a few years. Should it just be smaller? In terms of the buildings, definitely. Um, in terms of the way in which it operates, because the thing you've got to remember about number 10, I mean, for a centre of government, cabinet office and all the rest of it, you do need a certain amount of size. There's quite a few jobs to do. There's another problem, which is lots of duplication of efforts, you know, far too many senior people in and around the cabinet office who've all been given a brief and it's all a bit of a mess. But in terms of number 10 itself, the issue is that mostly what that department's doing is speaking to one principal, the prime minister. And so, yes, there is a, almost a limit to the number of people you can have there because not everyone can get a meeting with the prime minister. Not everyone can fit in the same room, all the rest of it. 
But I think the other question, Alex can talk about this, is is whether or not it is all circulating around the Prime Minister or whether or not these changes are actually about Steve Barclay, the new Minister Chief of Staff, and whether or not the reorganisation is to make it work around him. Alex, I do hope you can talk about that. As far as we can tell, is this right? There's going to be a new office of the Prime Minister because the Prime Minister said there was. So that's a smaller, apparently more coherent bunch of people around him. And then there's going to be something else, which is essentially the rump of the cabinet office. But lots of this may still be wrapped together in a kind of wrapper called the cabinet office. Is that right? Or is it more intricate than that? Yes. Well, I mean, it's these things always end up being more intricate than, than, than that, I suppose. But 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 essentially, yes, I mean, the government hasn't yet made uh, a clear announcement on how it's going to reorganise itself at the centre. Um, as you and Kath were saying, there have been some reports about shifting people out of uh, number 10, which has created ructions, uh, possibly uh, physically shifting some of the functions out, even including maybe the, the policy unit, which has long sat in uh, uh, the physical building of number number 10. We don't know, it's important to say that, but I think it seems very likely that this reorganisation will involve a bigger number 10 that might spill over into the Cabinet Office that would include uh, some of the functions like the um, uh, coordination secretariats that that sit in uh, 70 Whitehall uh, next door to Downing Street that at the moment serve the Prime Minister and the whole of the Cabinet. So there's a, there's an expanded function there for Number 10, which will spill over out of the physical building. But then there's uh, also the remains of the Cabinet Office. And you ask Kath whether um, the centre is too big. The Cabinet Office is certainly uh, much, much bigger than it used to be uh, and, and arguably too big now. There are about eight thousand people in the cabinet office and that's because and that's grown from you know 1500 2000 people 10 uh, 12 years ago um, and that's because the cabinet office has taken on uh, what um, what civil servants call the functional aspects of government so uh, hr and project management and procurement and, and and so on. So there's a huge group of people that are doing things that we at the IFG care about a, a lot, particularly when thinking about civil service and government reform, but um, but get less attention uh, in the day-to-day reporting uh, of it. So those people are likely to be separated out from the unit that's directly supporting the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. That leads to a sort of more uh, sensible organisational structure, but it does mean that those really, really important functions are further away from the authority of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Civil Service. So there's a risk that they get marginalised and you end up with quite an unsexy organisation that's doing kind of back office government stuff that is less effective than it might be because it doesn't have that political heft. But you want it to do some of that back office stuff, don't you? There was a Twitter thread by Nikki DaCosta, formerly of Number 10, and she it was a plea uh, for those carrying out the changes to remember the solid middle of Number 10, the heart and soul of the organisation and its institutional knowledge and experience. A plea for the status quo or for something that could easily get lost? For Number 10 and the team that's directly supporting the Prime Minister to pull together, I think. And I completely agree with uh, Nikki that you need to apply some sensible, if you know, a bit boring management discipline to the way that number 10 is organised. People need to be motivated. They need to ha- uh, receive a sense of strategic direction from the Prime Minister and from Chief, uh, from Steve Barclay now as the, the Ministerial Chief of Staff. They need to know what the, you know what the project is, be signed up to it, and what their role is in that. There will always be, as Kath 
Kath was alluding to, tensions then about who has access. Number 10 is a court. The prime minister runs a court, perhaps particularly this prime minister runs a court where he quite likes competing opinions and a bit of jeopardy and uh, anxiety about people's status in that court. There will always be losers uh, in, in that in terms of access and authority. So you can expect grumbling, but a sense of direction and everybody being on the same team is the important thing. And that's what we've not seen in number 10 over the last uh, couple of years at times. Adam, what's your take on whether this matters? Well, I think there are two problems with it. I mean, obviously, we would all like to see in the interests of the country a, a more functioning government. But I think the two problems are, one, as just alluded to, is the personality of the Prime Minister, who has said uh, repeatedly on the record that he thrives on chaos. He's not someone who delegates reliably in as much as uh, trusting uh, people other than himself to assume responsibility. So I think there are great problems there. And, you know, to talk about number 10 as a court leads on to the second problem, which is that uh, the cabinet secretary, Simon Case, is clearly now being perceived as a courtier rather than as a, a champion of uh, impartial government uh, in its own right. And this plays into one of the big tensions that I know the IFG has, has looked at repeatedly uh, between uh, a supposedly uh, impartial civil service that used to be regarded as a Rolls Royce and the growth of special advisors, outsiders coming in. And I, you know, I've not talked to people on either side, you know, a so-called spad on one side will spend most of their time slagging off what they call the blob. And equally civil servants, if you speak to them, are despairing at political appointees coming in uh, and telling them what to do, which very often consists of, of reinventing the wheel. And I can't see how any of this tension is going to go out of it. Maybe Stephen Barclay is a going to be a key player in all this. But then we do have to look at, you know, when the Prime Minister has given power away, when he appointed, for example, Dominic Raab as Deputy Prime Minister, or when he went to Stephen Barclay, how should we put this? He went to not necessarily... Uh, the most distinguished individuals uh, available. I mean, neither of them are the equivalent of a Willie Whitelaw uh, or a Hesseltine or even a Gordon Brown, are they? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Kath, just finally on this, the two mm -hmm. things. Uh, number 10 is doing this as a response to all the criticisms over party gate and saying the Prime Minister didn't have a grip. There's two things hanging over it all. One is the local elections in early May. Well, we know when they, those are. And then there's the police report. And we don't know when mm -hmm. that is. Is, are the police restricted in when they report by the local elections? I don't know. I'd actually have to go back and look. I think if they were, it would be more of a self restriction. I don't think there's any. So, yeah, local local elections work differently from a general election anyway, which there's a sort of more general, what they call perder. It's not a very good word to use, uh, but a sort of general restraint on, on government and what it can announce and various public bodies and so forth. But not all public bodies are, are subject to that in the same way. And local elections, it's only if it matters in terms of the particular election that's going on so what happens at gen in general uk government level um isn't quite that re re uh, relevant so no there wouldn't be a specific restriction on it whether they have it in mind they've often misjudged the politics so they'll probably announce far too early that they're not going to announce it because of the results and then actually get a backlash and then do it at the worst possible time i don't know <laughs> it's a perfectly good prediction thank you for that and just really briefly adam do you think ukraine has meant that people have forgotten about party gate no i don't actually i i think that 
Partygate will return. And I think uh, even what's happened uh, with uh, Oleg Deripaska's uh, flat, uh, the uh, house, uh, sorry. in, in uh, Yeah, it was not a flat. It was uh, a, ma- a mansion, I think. A mansion, like. exactly. And the massive police turnout there uh, compared to uh, the way in which uh, the police have behaved uh, on other occasions um, against protesters. I think that means that that you know, there's a big question mark about the future of Boris Johnson, whether he gets fined. But equally and equally concerning, I think, for citizens are massive questions about where the Metropolitan Police go from here, given a widespread loss of public confidence, which actually, ironically, Ukraine and the clampdown on the oligarchs has heightened once again. Yes, and that's a fascinating subject in itself and one we want to come back to. We do a lot, actually, on, on, on police and the criminal justice system. But we're going to turn at that point just to our final subject, uh, which is farming and agriculture and Brexit, heading further afield, literally, if you like, to farming and the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, because DEFRA, to give it its acronym, finds itself much more powerful after Brexit Now that we're outside the EU, the government is free, supposedly, to redesign how it supports England's farmers, the Welsh and Scottish and Northern Irish arrangements obviously being being separate. And it's promised a very rosy future for lots of people, farmers, conservationists and consumers. That is, you know, lots of new places to sell food, freedom from restrictions, more greenery, lower food prices. But we've got a new report saying they can't actually have it all. One of its authors, Jill Rutter, joins us now. Jill, thanks for joining us and spending this time on this, this this really interesting subject, which is not the focus of news at the moment, but really represents quite a knotty problem for the government, doesn't it? Yes, it's a, it's a big problem. I think one of the things that really united Leave and Remain voters uh, was that if we could do anything better after Brexit, we could surely do agricultural policy better than the cap. The common agriculture policy, which successive governments had railed against as being not suitable for the UK. Remember, the cap used to dominate the uh, EU budget, still quite a big share of it, uh, invented really for the benefit of continental farmers, much smaller scale than UK farmers. We were forced uh, when we joined to go into a cap designed not by us, uh, we've tried, there've been various processes of reform. So the sort of old wine lakes and butter mountains that used to dominate the news disappeared. But I think the cap managed to alienate farmers who said it was mired them in red tape. But also one of the consequences of CAP was decades of environmental degradation, which is why people were really enthusiastic. And Michael Gove, when he became Theresa May's environment section, a slightly surprised move in uh, 2017, set out this whole new vision for the way in which we'd support agriculture in the, in England, as you said, uh, in a speech called Health and Harmony. Always sounds a bit to me like a beauty care product. But anyway, in Health and Harmony, he set out how he was going to use the what he called the unfrozen moment to redirect the £2.4 billion that are spent on agricultural support, no longer just to compensate farmers for owning land, that's how it works now, but to move over to a pure regime of payment for public goods. And that was going to be largely moves farmers would make to improve the environment. And so what did they say about about prices in particular? Because one of the charges of the, the, the Brexit campaign buried in, in, in all these um, things you, you've said was also not only paying a great deal of money into Europe to support European farmers overall, but it's resulting in higher prices for consumers. 
Well, this wasn't a centrepiece of Michael Gove's reforms, but it was one of the sort of Brexiter promises was that the cap was very protectionist, that the EU was a very took a very protectionist view, wasn't willing to open its agricultural markets, and that one of the consequences of that was that UK consumers had higher food prices as a result. So there's been this sort of background that actually not only would the new future for agriculture offer uh, more for farmers, you know, less red tape, more for the environment, more public goods, but it would also be good news for consumers and ultimately taxpayers will be getting better value for their contributions. So all this sounds great. What's the problem now? So what's the problem? So the first problem is the government has, has actually done an amazing job of co-designing the policy. It's been riding this horse of trying to keep both farmers and conservationists on side. But that means it's sort of rather buried the inevitable trade-offs. And as it reveals sort of bit by bit, lifts the veil on what the new scheme looks like, farmers are complaining that the sort of payments look inadequate. Uh, conservationists are complaining that the environmental ambitions are being watered down. And one of the first things we say is actually the government needs to be very clear where there are trade-offs. They've raised expectations so high, the real risk here is they end up disappointing both sides of this. So that's the sort of first big problem. Second big problem is DEFRA has established quite an unenviable track record of making a real dog's breakfast of implementing past reforms. There's some signs, again, that there may be some risks around delivery. They need to make sure that they do that. There's a real risk that as they face some of these complaints, they sort of water down the ambitions. And actually, it looks like that they're sort of paying farmers for what they do anyway. Uh, and that really risks the value for money there. But the final thing is the government's not really set out a sort of wider ambition for what it sees as the future of farming. And while we focused in this report very much on the implementation of the new reform support, uh, the new agricultural support package, there are big questions about the future of farming. We've seen farming, suffering from labour shortages with the end of free movement. We've got regulatory changes, some of which may be good news for farmers, other than not. It's been made harder for farmers to trade with the EU, but we've got new trade deals coming on stream, which farmers are worried about with Australia and New Zealand, and a whole big range of other issues. A whole lot of stuff. So farming, you know, kind of six years on, farming, there have been a lot of words, buckets of words, but we really don't have a clear picture of where farming is going and what the government is, is offering it. Alex, you uh, used to work in DEFRA, among many other places in, in, in government. What do you make of, of what Jill has sketched out? Yes, well, I, I, mean, I agree with Jill's, Jill's points. I, I joined DEFRA 20 years ago. It was my first civil service job, left in 2010, and then went back, actually, in 2018, because it's an interesting, engaging agenda for, for the department. It was one of the areas where there were and are real advantages coming from the Brexit decision. Um, so it's a great time for the department. It's a really Im important time for the department. One of the things about DEFRA that always struck me was it's quite, it was often considered a, uh, you know, not a heavy hitter in the, uh, in the Whitehall world. But there were moments where when I was there first time around, David Miliband was Secretary of State, for example, when, uh, and, and DEFRA was responsible for climate change, when DEFRA really helped to set the agenda across the whole of government. This potentially is another such moment. There is, there's a bit of a, um, a critique that Michael Gove uh, set a sort of compelling vision in the uh, beauty product, Health and Harmony, that Jill was talking about. And inevitably, as you get into the reality of 
making this stuff happen, it gets eroded and some of those high ambitions uh, suffer because of the, uh, the sort of nature of politics. But I would definitely put in a case for this, this being really important. I think it's easy to overlook the fact that while DEFRA isn't, doesn't have some of the sort of status of the, the Treasury or Number 10 or some of the other bits of government we were talking about before, it is responsible for land. There was a, the environment in which we, uh, we exist in. Um, there was a phrase, in fact, Jill and I worked together in DEFRA a long time ago. She may even have been responsible for it that I rather liked, which was DEFRA is responsible for the essentials of life. So water, land, air, all these things. And they, you know, they, they tangibly matter to people. And I think we undervalue that um, in the system. I'll get off my DEFRA. Uh, and I'm different. not going to give you marks out of 10 for that slogan sorry um <laughs> i'm grimacing at my screen adam can i just bring you in on this point about how big it is because alex is touching on something you know farming really shapes the the look of um uh, of the uk of england um the, you know the way it looks in all the posters if uh, farming goes bust we sell off the farmland for housing this this could be very radical couldn't it Yes, I think it, I think it could, and I think the government has a basic problem, which is its repeated promises that farmers would be no worse off under the new regime than they were under the common agricultural policy. And if, uh, for example, we've seen uh, hill farmers, uh, sheep farmers, saying that they're going to go to the wall uh, under the new proposals, I think that would have a very negative uh, social impact. I also think that, you know, the problem we've got, going back to what Alex was saying, is this whole question of land usage, a whole lot of competitive ideas. Clearly, as a result of Ukraine, people are going to be more interested in food production and and, and, and sufficiency. Yet we've got uh, George Monbiot in The Guardian today saying, uh, you know, plowing up Britain is not the answer. Uh, we've equally got pressures for wilding. Farmers are having to deal with this whole idea of planting trees uh, versus uh, fertile land that can give regular crops. You know, I don't think there are any easy answers. And uh, although I think Michael Gove did try and uh, engage with some of these questions in a way that a clever columnist might, I don't think there's been profound thinking in that area. I, I mean, Jill would obviously have a much clearer idea than me, but whether there is actually a clear vision of the use of the land, the ownership of the land, and indeed one of those promises that uh, big landowners wouldn't be the big gainers of subsidies uh, under the new regime, whether any of those questions are actually being answered in this. Jill, let, let me finally ask you this point about devolution and how the, just the different parts of the UK answer this, because the UK government is doing some of these things like making trade deals, deciding what um, what lamb Australia and New Zealand can bring in on behalf of the whole UK. But if hill farmers are under pressure, it's going to be up to Cardiff or Edinburgh to answer, isn't it? Yes, I think we're likely to see different farm support schemes in uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. They seem to have more emphasis in supporting food production per se, though uh, it's still a bit of a moving, moving target. But they feel very strongly that they should be being consulted as well on those trade deals. We know that the UK government's been quite reluctant to engage the devolves in what it settles in those in those trade deals. So that's really sort of quite an interesting area. And of course, UK, although, you know, hill farming and things like that are less significant in England, they're quite significant in some areas like the Lake District. So you'll see the potential for England's farmers to feel that they're being poorly treated compared to Scots and Welsh counterparts. Really interesting point, as they as they, as they say, um, yeah, the others perhaps being more directly supported while they're told to go and consider rewilding, re-George Monbiot, whatever. We're going to have to come back to this because it is fascinating and it's going to take a long time to play out and it is below the headlines at the moment, but it really affects an awful lot of people.
but we don't have time to go into it now because that is it for another episode of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Alex Thomas, Jill Rutter, and especially to Adam Bolton. Adam, great that you could be here. Please come back soon. Thank you. Thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got some terrific recordings heading your way soon. We've got a special event on levelling up with Minister Neil O'Brien. And we've got a deep dive into these agricultural reform questions we've just been talking about. That's on March 30th with a terrific cast list for that panel. And we've also got a very timely discussion I'll have with Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radican. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. Do leave us a review as well. And don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. You can find our new paper on farming there, as well as all our writing about Ukraine. The war continues. Let's hope for better news when we return this time next week. Have a good weekend. <laughs>